Now, once again this morning, and today is the start of Advent, but once again this morning and this evening, we have a, a double header on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a, a kind of season, I think, of preaching here at the moment where we have spent a lot of time over the past year looking at books like 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Corinthians, really looking at what it means to be a church fit for purpose, a leader fit for purpose, how to think evangelistically, how to think about taking steps forward. And we trust that God ties all of that together um, to help us do that. But we are in a season now, not Advent, I mean in Mark and Hebrews, where we really are simply looking at the person of Jesus Christ, simply looking at him. And it's good for us to do that, to look at the person who is the very center and heart of our lives, Jesus. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this Advent season, and we thank you for this season in Mark's Gospel and Hebrews at night, as we focus on the person of Jesus. Lord, we want to love him more. We want to know him more. We want to know what he has done for us more and of his love for us. Help us to understand and appropriate into our lives all of who he is, all of what he has accomplished for us and in us, and how he is pleased to use us to bring his message to others. We pray in his name and for his sake. Amen. Now, two readings today, and we will incorporate these very much into the sermon, so don't get worried as we take our time through them. Firstly, from the prophecy of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 1 to 16, and you'll find that on page 744 in the church Bibles. Why are we reading Daniel 7? Well, because Mark had Daniel 7 very much in his mind as he wrote the section that we are going to look at in Mark's Gospel. Now, Daniel 7, you'll find it on page 744, as I said, is one of the prophetic visions Daniel received during the exile. And the central chapter in the book of Daniel is chapter 7, and it powerfully conveys the message of the book of Daniel as a whole. And if I was summarizing the message of the book of Daniel, it would be something like this, that worldly power or human power is always subject or under God's sovereign power. And that is seen most clearly in history in how God has established a kingdom that is universal and never ends under the rule of his divine human king, Jesus. Let me just uh, set that out again. So the message of the book of Daniel, worldly power or human power is always subject to God's sovereign power. And that is most powerfully seen in history in God establishing a universal and an everlasting kingdom under the rule of his divine human king, Jesus. Now let's read God's word in light of that big picture 
in Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my visions by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. The four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Now, what's all that about? Well, just look across to verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I think what alarms him was the sort of sheer scale of power in that description, and evil power. I approached one of those who stood there, one of the angels, and asked him the truth concerning this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings, or kingdoms might be a better translation, who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High will inherit the kingdoms. So what kingdoms are they? Well, the first beast, like a lion, the kingdom of Babylon, with its lions and its kings. The second, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians and its kings. The third, the Greek Empire and its kings, people like Alexander the Great. And the fourth, the Roman Empire and its emperor, kings. These are the four successive kingdoms on the earth, from the exile with the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. They are the beasts. But these beasts afford not simply a specific interpretation like that, but also a general interpretation. They stand for all human kingdoms and kings, all human power and authority throughout history, all worldly power, if you like. Now, as we read on in the vision, verse 9, just look at verse 9, it begins, as I looked. We're not reading about linear time here. We're not reading about something that happened after a period where the beasts ruled on the earth or worldly power was dominant. Verse 9 is a parallel reality. So verses 1 to 8 describe worldly human power. Verse 9 describes sovereign power, which has always been and always will be, overarching any human power. So it's a parallel reality. As I looked, so if you were listening to this 2,000 years ago, you would read, as I looked. If you're listening to this today, as I looked. If Jesus has not returned in 100 years, as I looked, nothing changes about God. 
As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I was thinking of the, the, the song as I read that, How Great Is Our God. How Great Is Our God. I looked there because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So the parallel reality to worldly human power is God is sovereign on his throne with fire and judgment and holiness and purity. And then what follows in verses 13 and 14 is a vision of the coronation of a king. Now, just to let you know, if you are not aware of this news, that the Crown Series 3 is now on Netflix. But it's not as good as Series 1. And Series 2 is not as good as Series 1. The best episode in The Crown, I think, was The Coronation. It's such a massive deal in even our history. The coronation of our monarch. This is the coronation. This is the description here in verse 13 of this vision. After all the stuff about worldly power, after the stuff about God on his throne. Here's a description of God crowning his human divine king over his eternal kingdom. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Now, son of man, why are we reading this? Son of man is the number one title Jesus uses of himself. This is Jesus. Jesus says so. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. This is Jesus after his death and resurrection and ascension coming into the presence of God, and he was presented before him, and to him this divine human king was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That is a description of the coronation of Jesus Christ as the king of God's everlasting kingdom. The king who is human and divine who is Jesus. How do we know it is Jesus? Because Jesus says again and again and again through the Gospels, I am the Son of Man. Now, with that in your mind, and you need to have that in your mind, all that vision, not just the coronation bit, but the, the bad bit at the beginning, the worldly power bit, and the sovereignty of God bit, over all of history, and that day in history where the eternal Son of God, who had been made a human king, was crowned. The eternal Son of God 
and the divine Davidic human king crowned as the king of God's everlasting kingdom. And then come down to earth, literally, when Jesus walked on the earth, and read Mark chapter 2, page 837. I do love that sound. Preachers say that. Oh, I do love the sound of rustling leaves or hubbub of noise. So here we are down to earth with Christ on the earth. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered there. So there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming, which simply means speaking against God. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And of course, they're right. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man, think of Daniel's vision, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he did. He rose. He immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Now, what can we learn from this passage? You'll see the headings on the back of the service sheet. Let's skip over the context. That's there to help you recap. But number one, Jesus is doing what he came to do. Now, do listen in to the sermon last week. I think it's really a helpful passage to precede this one uh, as we, we, we work through Jesus' own heart as he came to terms with the fact that the most important thing he had to do was to preach a message. When he returned to Capernaum 2.1, it was reported he was at home, many were gathered, There was no room, and he was preaching the words to them. One of the key verses in Mark, chapter 1, verse 38, just glance back, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I have come. That's why he came. He came to preach a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That is the priority in his ministry. He says, a priority he came to terms with in the face of many, many other needs. Somebody commented to me after the first service, very helpfully, I think, that, that, that it takes such resolve on Jesus' part to make that his priority. Because unlike us, he could deal with every need. That's exactly right. 
He could do anything. And yet in his compassionate heart, he chose to make speaking a message of forgiveness his priority because, and that's the second heading, forgiveness of sins is every person's greatest need. Now I said to you last week that that that, that well we saw how it doesn't speak of any lack of compassion on Jesus' part. And the only place that it I think on earth that it sounds or the place that it sounds most powerful and persuasive is in a church where people are caring for one another with all manner of needs. Last night, two of us as elders sat with a man and his wife who's really, really sick. And this is what he prayed. Because I read, you always get the passage that the minister's preaching on the next day. And he said in his prayer, thank you, Jesus, that my eternal future is safe. People have great needs. They have desperate needs. But nobody has a deeper and a more desperate need than their need of forgiveness. Why? Why is our sins being forgiven our greatest need? Well, don't think of sin as what we do or what we say. Sin is who we are in the core of our beings. We are sinful humanity born into the state of sinful humanity. If you're very new to Christian things, don't think of sin as a kind of... It's an unusual word in our culture. It's a very common Bible word. It just describes how we're wired as humans. It's the problem within us that we know where it's sorted would sort everything else. Nor should we think of sin as relative to our fellow humanity. Sin is only ever relative to God. The ancient of days, that fiery, holy, pure, white, radiant, divine God from whom sin separates us. Our separation from God is a fact of our sinfulness. Our separation from God is a fact of God's godness. And to be separated from the holy God by sin is to be under the eternal judgment of God. And that is a burning fire in judgment. Eternal judgment facing humanity, unless God's righteous, holy anger is satisfied. We cannot do it. We cannot cleanse our sinful hearts by trying harder. We cannot meet the righteous requirements of God.
So was it not right when that man was lowered down at the feet of Jesus that Jesus said to him, I will deal with your greatest need. I will reconcile you to God forever. Son, your sins are forgiven. Let me read this sentence again, maybe for somebody here. Nobody has a deeper and more desperate need than the forgiveness of their sins. Let me read another phrase, Jesus' words. Your sins are forgiven. What should we make, thirdly, of their faith? Verse 5. I was uh, saying earlier that uh, this is a verse I always, well, this is a little phrase I always omitted. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. I mean, what do we make of their faith? Is it real? After all, their faith was in Jesus, yes, but not for forgiveness, for healing. They wanted him healed. We can understand that. So did Jesus really see real faith and did he really forgive this man? Yes, because he said he did. How can he have done so, though, without genuine repentance and forgiveness for forgiveness? Maybe there was some awareness of a deeper need in their hearts that Jesus saw, maybe. How do we deal with that? Well, I think one way to deal with it is that these gospel accounts are not giving us normative examples of what saving faith looks like or requires. This is right at the start of Jesus' ministry, and nobody has any idea really at this stage who he is. But Jesus does commend, even at this stage, without the knowledge that they will have and without the knowledge that we have, the first pictures of faith in these gospel books are people coming to Jesus, the man who is God, for help. Coming to him. Desperate. They might not know what it is that he needs to give them, but they know that he is the one who gives it. Or the woman in chapter 5, in that big crowd, you might know that account when Jesus is being pressed by the crowd. He's always surrounded by a crowd, Jesus. And she touches his cloak. She reaches out, believing, if I only touch him, I am healed. Now, we could say to her, no, 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 no. You need to know the creed. You need to know about atonement. You need to know about the cross. And all of that is true. But if you know about the atonement and know about the cross, you need to reach out to him too. She touches him. And he says, who touched me? And the disciples go, well, what do you mean who touched you? Hundreds of people touched you. Power has gone out of me. Daughter, your faith has healed you. What is he saying? He's saying, look, she's right. She doesn't yet understand. But she reaches out to me. 
And therein is a powerful example. Faith, faith is in him. We don't believe in a sacrificial death in our place as the means of our forgiveness in some kind of abstract forensic way. We don't believe in a formula. We don't believe in substitutionary atonement. We need to understand it. We believe that Jesus, the eternal divine Son of God, died for me. We believe in him. Now, Scott tells me, as um, our band leader now, along with Connor, that if I pick a hymn at this point in the service, they could probably deliver it. But not yet. Don't panic, Connor. I always think of these hymns on a Saturday or a Sunday morning or a Friday or whatever. Listen to the words we sing. And can it be that one could gain an interest, perhaps, in the Saviour's blood? Would that he could have died for us. It's not like that, is it? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's world? Died he for me. That you, my God, should die for me. You, me, God, Jesus, my Jesus. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine, Bold I approach his throne. What throne? The throne that he approaches. Amazing love that you, my God, should die for me. Or Horatius Bonus hymn that we sang. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Come unto me and rest. Lay down, O weary one, lay down your head upon my breast. At which point I contemplate theology. No, 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 no. That's important. You need to understand. Faith comes through understanding. We need to understand the cross. But in that hymn, what does it say? I came to Jesus as I was, weary and worn and sad. I found in him a resting place and he has made me glad. Somewhere in someone's journey to faith, always, there needs to be reaching out to Jesus Christ. Faith in him. Verses 6 to 12. Jesus' authority to forgive sins. Some of the scribes there, some of the Jewish religious leaders were sitting there questioning in their hearts, uh, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they are right. Of course, only Jesus can forgive, only God rather can forgive sins. If a mere man claims to forgive sins, that is blasphemy, speaking against God, unless of course that mere man is God, unless it is a divine uh, man because only God can forgive sins. Immediately, verse 8, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that he thus questioned, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Why do you question if I am God? Then he asks them, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? I don't think that's a riddle for us. I think the answer is it's a lot easier for someone to say your sins are forgiven, because how do you know? than it is to say, get up and take your mat and walk, because they either get up or they don't get up. And then a critical verse, so easy to understand. So easy to understand, verse 10. The question is, do we, do we believe it? But that you may know that the Son of Man, there's that Daniel title, 
has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. And no one has ever seen anything like that by any man ever in history. Bar this man, Jesus. That's such a clear and helpful verse. Does he have authority to forgive sins? He says, I want you to know that I have authority to forgive sins. And so to show you, I'm going to say to this man who has no muscles, sinews, cartilage, nerves, anything left, get up and walk out. And he gets up. And he walks out. Because he is God. He is man. And he is God. Now, question. Concentrate. Wake up. Thinking caps on. Pens at the ready. Why does he not say, so that I can show you that the Son of God has authority. Why does he say Son of Man? Now, here's a big mistake we could easily fall into. We could misunderstand the titles in the Bibles, Son of Man and Son of God. For example, we might think Son of Man means the human bit of Jesus, and Son of God means the divine bit of Jesus. That sounds neat, but it's not how the Bible uses these terms. It's come up quite a bit recently here and in Hebrews and Sunday night. Son of God can mean two things in the Bible. It can mean one the eternal divine Son of God, like God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Or it can mean God's appointed human king in the line of David. And in Mark's gospel, Son of God normally means God's appointed human king. There was a wee phone rumble. And you all concentrate. I can't remember what I was saying. So son of God in Mark is usually associated with God's king. Now son of man in Mark is the title Jesus uses to say, I am that king and I am divine. It's the kind of Fusion title for Jesus, Daniel 7, the man who is obviously a king being crowned, but no king in history has been given an eternal dominion and rule and reign and judgment. Son of man. Now there's a couple of words in verse 10 that are really important. Just look at the detail of that, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I think what Mark is saying there is that you can be assured of your forgiveness on earth. What does that mean? It means that the work that means we are forgiven or the act that means we are forgiven is a finished work or a finished act. Jesus reigns and has not yet returned because 
the bringing of people into his kingdom is not yet finished, but the work or act that brings them in is finished. Because Jesus said, as he hung on the cross, it is finished. And the curtain was ripped. And there is full assurance of forgiveness. Paul says in Romans, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Not quite. He says there is therefore now no condemnation. Right now. And you don't need to go to Romans 8 to get the assurance of full forgiveness. You get it from Jesus way at the start of his ministry when he says the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. What a glorious, glorious thought that you do not need and I do not need to wait till judgment day to know the answer. How can you be sure? How can you be sure? Because Jesus said when he died, it is finished. Religion will have you climb a ladder with no top. And you will never know the gospel knocks the ladder down and gives you full assurance and you live speaking to people of the assurance of forgiveness. Number six, Jesus died to forgive our sins, verse 10. When Jesus was baptized, that was a sign that pointed to the cross, his death cleansing us from sin. But here in Mark 2, in this passage about Jesus speaking about forgiveness, there are clear signals that Jesus himself will die to be the means of that forgiveness. What are these signals? Well, let's turn forward to chapter 8. Page 844. Chapter 8, verse 31. Mark is a a marvelous writer. He did have God helping him, inspiring him, but he has all sorts of clues and connections and and, and across his gospel that are obvious when when, when you see them. So chapter 8, verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer and die. The Son of Man... The man who said, your sins are forgiven. The man who said, but that you may know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins, get up and walk. That divine king of Daniel 7 will die. Chapter 9, verse 30 to 32 They went on from there and passed through Galilee and he did not want anyone to know for he was teaching his disciples saying to them the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And then the key verse in Mark's gospel perhaps 1045 for even the son of man came not to be served but a servant to give his life as a ransom for many. And remember the coronation in Daniel 7 of the son of man the coronation after the cross. The coronation after 
The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Or think of Philippians 2. The eternal, divine Son of God became man and humbled himself even to death on a cross and was exalted and dominion was given to him. Now let's finish with the reactions. Three reactions in the passage. Faith, friction and amazement. I'm quite proud of that title really. It's a good title. Faith, friction and amazement. Faith. When they saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. However much knowledge you have, the most knowledgeable Christian in this room who knows and loves Jesus and who understands the cross, and all of that is really critical. We need to understand. Otherwise, we'll not understand why he had to do it. The most knowledgeable Christian needs to be comfortable with the example of faith here that is simply reaching out to Jesus Christ, who is our all and our all. Friction. Some of the crowd, scribes rather, were questioning in their heart. There is a world of a difference. Questions are good if you're not a Christian. Questions are good. But you need, need to be prepared to listen to the answers and to stop asking questions. When Jesus says things like Mark chapter 2, verse 10, an amazement Amazement is in the world of no man's land. You're enticed. You're interested. But it's not faith. I said at the end of the first service, I was hoping I'd do better this time, that I, would, I, I want to finish with a kind of big altar call and, and, and do a, a very eloquent few minutes to really try and persuade you to get over the line if you're not a Christian. But I think that's probably wrong and I should just shut up and leave you with Jesus. Verse 10 is such a powerful verse because it captures Daniel 7, that glorious vision a crystal clear bit of evidence that he has authority to forgive. And it throws you forward to chapters 8, 9, and 10 and to the cross where that man died for you. All I will say to you as we finish is it matters a very, very great deal. A very great deal. Well, let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this magnificent Saviour, Jesus. Thank you for that fusion of the glorious vision of Daniel that is him. Jesus who came to earth to preach forgiveness and died. Thank you for the coherence of Scripture. Thank you for the intersection of truth into our lives. Help us, Lord, to give up 
asking questions when we have heard the answer. Help us simply to believe. Help us to have faith. For Jesus' sake. Amen.